Welcome to the Summit Series podcast by Elevation Capital, where we'll be speaking to some of India's top business minds and their journeys and lessons they've learned. Our guest today is Deep Kalra, Cherubin Group CEO and founder of Make My Trip, India's leading online travel company. I'm super excited to have you as our inaugural speaker, Deep. This is the first episode of the Summit Series, and we could not think of a better guest to have. So thanks again. I'm honored, Ravi, and I'm very excited myself. Uh, always, always fun to catch up, and uh, I'm honored that I'm the first one in this series, the Summit series, I think. Uh, so yeah, looking forward to it, and uh, thank you for having me. Awesome. I've listened to a couple podcasts that um, you've done historically, and I've done some. Um, our, our crack AI ML team internally has scoured the internet for recordings with you, and and I what I realized is there's a lot of content that's been covered quite well in terms of the early days of Make My Trip, um, at least what I've gleaned over the weekend. And so I thought it might be better to focus at least structurally on like post-2010, that makes sense, because it seems to be less, less well covered from what I, what I can find. I'll give you a quick background on Make My Trip as I see it, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I've also heard you do multiple backgrounds on Make My Trip as well. So Make My Trip was started in April 2000 with initial focus on the NRI market. They launched operations in 2005, post um, an investment by Elevation Partners at the time, or Safe Partners at the time. And you know, we're beyond um, ecstatic and fortunate to have been part with you for such a long period of time. And today commands a market cap worth $3 billion. And these are some numbers that I've kind of got from the public domain. So if you want to chime in, that'd be great too. But my understanding is you've served around 50 million customers in India. So a very large portion of folks that are actually transacting online today. And you sell you know, roughly 150 million hotel rooms and um, about $6 billion in GBV with roughly, you know, called 10 to 12% net margin. Is that all directionally correct in terms of pre-COVID numbers? That's fantastic. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds just about right. And uh, of course, I think 2010 is a good kind of watershed year to pick up um, because that's the year we listed. Uh, and you know the story so well from 2005 when you were indeed our first investors. And we're, we're so excited that you were. And I, I think the best test for that is that, you know, we're, we're, we're friends today and probably even better friends today than we were then. So that's that's a great testimony to the fact that you've been great investors for us. And all the figures are directionally uh, absolutely correct. You know, COVID has obviously hit our business really hard. Uh, but if we had this podcast even three months ago, I don't think I'd be so bullish and sanguine about everything. I think I'd be, you know, still in the thick of, uh, you know, the dark woods and wondering when we'll get out of this. Now I distinctly see light at the end of the tunnel. I think the company has done a pretty good job, not only just surviving through this period, but actually coming out of it and, you know, dare I say even thriving because we've managed to actually have a very good uh, last quarter. October, November, December for us was indeed uh, uh, special because after a long period of time, we turned the company profitable that was during COVID. And uh, and then at the back of that, we had a fundraise, you know, just literally last month. So early February is when we had the fundraise. So yeah, it's been it's been pretty interesting and it continues to go well as the country is getting out of COVID. Uh, and the company, I think, is definitely capitalizing on whatever opportunities there are out there. 
So it's, um, I remember you used to joke that you were profitable before you met me. And then I think it took five or six years <laughs> to become profitable again. So, you know, thrilled to hear about this um, in terms of taking advantage, I guess, um, for lack of better words, in terms of what structurally has happened during COVID. You know, let's, let's spend some time on this in terms of, because I think it's very topical in nature as, you know, a lot of companies are coming out, in my mind, you know, leaner and stronger out of COVID in India. And there's been a much stronger focus, I would say, in terms of, you know, profitability metrics and, you know, getting rid of a lot of, for lack of better words, wasteful spending um, that, you know, at least in earlier stage companies, I think there's been a lot of, you know, just very excessive spending on cashbacks or marketing dollars that I think people have realized that if they take this out, you can still grow a very good, healthy business. And if your product is good, customers will come back. And so love to understand, you know, what you've learned as a company over the last, you know, 12 months. Um, during COVID and, you know, structural changes you think that will um, you know, benefit make my trip over the long run? Yeah, no, I think you framed it very well, Ravi. I think every time there's a crisis and every time there's hardship and difficulty, and even if it's as localized as you're running out of capital, you're not sure that you can raise more money uh, and you have a finite amount of capital, you don't even know that if you would be able to survive beyond, let's say, six months or 12 months. I think decision-making changes and decision-making becomes uh, far more about how can we preserve cash and also willy-nilly it becomes more about how can I stretch that dollar to its maximum. And while many people will like to say that, hey, you know, if you have good financial discipline, uh, even when there's a lot of cash, you'll always kind of retain that. The reality is that um, uh, you do get into a different mode. You do get into uh, a more of a growth focus. You know, that's what our companies are all about as they should be, which is how fast can you keep growing. But there is a fine line between growing fast and growing uh, with suboptimal economics, to put it mildly. So basically, you don't want to get into a buying business scenario. And we all know at some point of time, and a little bit of economics out here, at some point of time of marketing spend, diminishing marginal returns will set in. And I think that's the key point when you figure out, hey, by spending extra dollars, whether it's just pure marketing or it's discounting or couponing or whatever you want to call it or rebates of any nature, but basically all the inducements, uh, beyond a certain point, they're actually now not giving you uh, the same return as you got. So they're still giving you a positive return. So many people will wear um, the lens and say, till I can keep getting a positive return, I'll keep going, which is fine. Many people will say, hey, but we don't want to be less efficient than this because we've already reached this level of efficiency. So now let's find other avenues. And I think uh, the best consumer online businesses are those who have multiple fronts open at all points of time, are running multiple experiments, uh, not just for product, or you know, AB on product, but even testing out the marketing avenues like what's paying and what's giving you maximum bang for the buck. So there'll always be a stack order. Uh, it can't be that everything is always equal, but then you know what you can dial up and you can milk uh, till the point where you just can't get more inventory of that until the point that particular channel hits diminishing returns and then you move to the other channel. So it's fairly logical, I think. And I think if you come from a standpoint where you're metric driven, you know, you can say these are the best kind of creative things we're doing, but guess what? Uh, we're almost controlling this thing with an algorithm. And that's what it really is. I mean, we, it took us many, many years to arrive on this kind of algorithm, 
and you were right there when I think till 2008, uh, it was largely a flights business and we were trying to push hotels, which took a long time to open up. But it was a nice, profitable cash hotel business, uh, flights business. But we obviously had to go beyond that because flights over, over time is not going to give you the kind of returns simply because there are few large players on the flights business and margins will always be under pressure. You were there when we on the board when we were trying to build this other business and we realized we have to invest a lot in it. But then I think when we really made this far more rigorous, this whole map around marketing, as I call it, I think that was the turning point for us too. So I think when we went public, we managed to crack something there. And then of course we went in into different kind of crises that happened. I'm sure we can talk about it after this, but yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to reflect back and to say every time you're pushed to a corner, I think you'll come out with much better solutions. You will push yourself and you'll push your team and each and every person will be saying, hey, listen, money is finite. It's not an endless supply. The tap will not stay open forever. So how can we uh, you know, get the highest ROI, to put very simply? So I guess my question would be, having been investing in India for almost 20 years now, is that it seems like there's always a short memory. There's always a short memory of like, you know, at these crisis moments in India and where then companies kind of revert, something changes, new competitor comes in or, you know, people become more competitive and then start spending more money again. My gut tells me this one, this time might be different just because the crisis was so fundamentally different than before. You know, it was long, it was global, it was, I think, it fundamentally changed how people, you know, work. And that's my gut. I don't know, I'd love to hear your thought in terms of like, is this crisis really gonna make people hold more of these fundamentals in place over a longer period of time? Yeah, no, it's a very good observation. Uh, the only place where I disagree is I don't think it's an Indian thing. I think it's a new. No, I don't. I don't. I don't think it's. I think it's global. I think. Yeah, it, yeah. I think. I think it starts in the U.S. Yeah. And then there's like a six-month lag, then it comes to India as well. Absolutely. So whether it's the U.S. or it's China, it definitely comes to India. I think it's part of the new age economy, and I think what's really responsible uh, for this is the 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 most fundamental you know law of economics, which is demand and supply. So the moment we're going to have a lot of supply of capital in the private space, in the public space, you know, I, I, I would not be surprised if the bad habits come back. So it's just one of those things. And that's the reality. I hope you're right. But I, and yes, this is a longer crisis. People have, will definitely take a long time to forget it. But let's also not, not forget that many businesses have actually found a new lease of life in this, in this uh, pandemic. You know, travel obviously hasn't, but for many other businesses, this was, hey, wow, guess what? Not only can we turn profitable, but, you know, we actually can do everything even better than we did before because people can't really go out for our services. So whether it's food delivery or online, uh, you know, ordering, e-commerce, et cetera. And of course, entertainment online and gaming, everything has just done so well. So I'm not so sure that we won't go back when there's a lot of capital. Uh, you guys have been, I think, fairly conservative slash prudent investors and you know you've always kind of been pretty clear on um, you know unit economics are super important but then down the line we have many investors who come in who you know it's not their fault either it's that playbook has worked for them where they put you know money to play and they say listen we will first get a share 
and we will eliminate competition or weaken competition and then we'll uh, resurrect uh, economics and you know that's worked too for some people so at the end of the day i believe that the business needs to of course keep getting better and the the litmus test for that i always say is how is repeat trade doing without inducements it's as simple and basic as that which is do you have customers coming back to you for inducements or without inducements you can spend what you want for trial and if people are coming back because they like your product they like your service it's better than anything else out there then it's worth spending money on if they aren't and you're you got this leaky bucket and you keep acquiring customers and losing them and acquiring new customers you have a problem then no amount of money is is ever going to fix it and i think we've seen enough businesses go down that way so i'm hoping that the new investors with the big fat paychecks that come by will be more discerning on that just from an ecosystem point of view will give more um, you know attention and more uh, currency to that rather than just to say hey this company is growing at breakneck speed and who cares about the economics right now so i i think there's been a chastening there so this is also india i don't know how you look at it ravi because you've seen india internet probably among the earliest investors really there and is it 2 3.0 or is it 3.5 i don't know it's somewhere between 3 and 4 it looks like phases wise uh but it's really the coming of age also for india if we see we had you know thanks to the pandemic we've almost leapfrogged in terms of the number of customers who are now buying online not just browsing so i think we'll probably get into the we'll be 200 million people buying something online by the end of 21 and we were 100 million people by the end of 20 so i think something interesting is definitely happening so i that that might mean different things so we'll have to wait and watch so do you think that you know the funny things when i first started investing in india the popular notion was india was 10 years behind china or uh, 5 years behind china they came then it became 10 years then became 15 years behind china has is covid kind of created that tipping point for india as it you know pulled like you know demand for for online services you know i think you'll see that obviously in travel next 6 months as things open up but in terms of e-commerce we've seen that edtech we've seen that food delivery we've seen that you know is covid has covid actually ironically uh, moved um you know kind of made india overall um cross that tipping point or cross that chasm where you know things are just going to finally move at the pace that we would have expect back in 2005 yeah you know i think so i think so ravi because i think what it's done is definitely accelerated the growth of people putting down money buying stuff online i think before this we had a lot of people browsing the reality is i mean you know thanks to uh, geo and to others we did race to 400 500 million people online but the bulk of those people 80% of those people weren't buying online so they were consuming free content they were doing whatever else but they were still not ready to buy online i think that got accelerated in a pretty significant way for a couple of things i think new ways of payment the upi system wallets etc all of that helped and then came the pandemic where you literally for two months in india could not go to the market so really the only other way to pay was like someone was willing to take an online payment an rtgs through your wallet but then someone just said and, and it was probably the younger generation at home saying hey it's so easy why don't you actually buy the groceries online and they're going to get delivered and india didn't have any shortages right through the uh, pandemic which was great so i think that gave people the confidence so i think the number of buyers and there are various estimates out there will very soon be double of what it was pre covid 
I am convinced. So, and it's a one-way street. People don't go back. But why we have not caught up with China and why I think that would still take time. And I'm more in favor of the, I'm closer to 10 than to five years. It's definitely not five years. It's probably not 10, but who knows how things change because that whole famous Moore's law comes into place at some point of time where it starts accelerating and going even faster, I think is, is fundamentally the per capita income. So that's not changed, right? That's that's still going to be the most important inflection point. But we have everything else ready. So I think the platform's ready for takeoff. You just need the fuel. And the fuel's going to be when we move, not necessarily all the way to $6,000 per capita, but you know we have to move to four. And I think that's going to see a massive explosion. And again, it's all, it's all like uh, contiguous. It's not like a step function. It, it's starting to happen. And in certain areas, people are definitely spending a lot. So yeah, I think the next decade is just going to be clearly Indian. That I have no doubt. I think all the hard, the 20 years that you put in is going to be so well worth it. All of us have put in, many of us 20 years. So I, I, I really think the folks who are coming in now, firstly, I think we're much smarter entrepreneurs. I don't know if you agree, but I think they, they just know so much more. They're just so much more evolved and more aware of what's going on that these guys are just going to now, uh, I think, build the biggest companies on the internet. That's probably going to start now for India. So yeah, I think the best is yet to come on that. Yeah, I think that I'd agree with the number of companies that are looking to raise funding now, obviously, is 10x, 50x, 100x over the last 20 years, right? So the pool of people who've kind of said, look, I'm going to take a higher risk path is significantly higher than it's ever been in India, which is fantastic. So that's what you need for an ecosystem. Um, but yeah, so that's, 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 I think I would definitely echo that sentiment in terms of, it just feels like it's finally, finally happening. It just feels like you just kind of see things happen much faster because the old joke initially was that it takes 15 years in India to, for a company to kind of get to scale. I think you're seeing that come, come down to like five to 10 in, a lot, in some cases, which yeah. I think is, which is amazing. So maybe that's a good segue towards um, when you went public and this is, I think, I'd love to get your perspective because it's a very unique vantage point. Um, you went public in 2010. And at the time, I think a lot of people, at least in the U.S., said, okay, this is the first company coming to India, come public in the U.S. There'll be probably, you know, 50 more over the next 10 years, similar to what happened in China. You saw a lot of companies come out in public in 2005, and then that kept going. You know, spent trillions of dollars in market cap that's come out of, come out of China. But unfortunately, you're also the last one to go public in the U.S. Um, over 11 years ago. And, you know, and we've talked about this in the past in terms of, you know, India has announced some preliminary changes to allowing companies go public in the U.S. Um, hopefully that gets resolved here in the next one or two months. But there's also the avenue of going public in, you know, in India, which is much more real today, I would believe, than it was 10 to 11 years ago. So in like, and also one other data point we figured out was that there's over 50 unicorns in India today. There's just a lot of companies that have kind of crossed this, this billion dollar threshold. And I think that'll go to, you know, called 60 probably by year end if I had to, if I had to bet on a number. Um, and so if you were, you know, I remember when you did your diligence, you know, 11, 12 years ago, you talked to a bunch of folks who listed in India, listed in the US. And like I said, you, you're, you're a very unique personality, perspective over the last 11 years of what it means to be public in the US, the advantages, the disadvantages. You know, how would you, if the rules open up, how would you guide a founder or entrepreneur today in terms of making the same decision you made 11, 12 years ago? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was one of those few times where our board was actually split down the middle. I think, as you will remember as well, there were a few people who were very keen that we list, but we list in India, and they have very good reasons. And there were a few people who were much keener that we list in the U.S. And I remember taking time out from uh, from the from the board and actually saying, I'm going to come back in a few days a week and just talk to people. And I spoke to various people because I was truly confused. There were merits in both. There seemed to be great merits on the marketing and the branding side to list in India. We could have done it through the book building process. I think we had two years of profitability, not three, but it could have been done. But the overwhelming reason that um, you know I wanted definitely to go ahead to list in the U.S. and then uh, you know the board supported that, and you of course uh, were always in favor of that, Ravi, was just the appreciation of an internet model. I think the appreciation of an internet model from the investors, public market investors' point of view, was just not there in India. The only comp we had probably was InfoEdge, uh, better known as Nokri, which had listed three years before. And let's not forget, Nokri collected most of their money offline. So people weren't really buying online. People were uploading their CDs online, but their, uh, they were the, Nokri was getting paid when their uh, uh, sales folks would go to offices and people would send checks and we were one of their clients. So I think it was a very different model. And they've obviously been, you know, the bellwether for, you know, the, the Indian kind of internet system. They were the first guys. Uh, two small corrections. So we weren't the first Indian company, internet company to list. That was Rediff, but sadly, uh, you know, ended up getting... Oh, no, and also Sifi. That's <laughs> Sifi, of course, who you know well. And then and then post us, there was uh, Yatra in our space who went through with a SPAC. So they are technically listed there too. But yeah, I think from a, from a robust listing point of view, it's probably still only us. Uh, and I think the reality, Ravi, is... So uh, first question, advice has not changed. My advice to an entrepreneur even today in the consumer tech space would be uh, if you, if you uh, can... Let's say you don't have three years of profitability. Some companies, I believe, would do. You can go ahead and list out here, but you're going to start getting comped with different companies and people out here, investors, are going to start getting confused and lost when you say, hey, there's a, there's competition in our space. Uh, you know, Our position is being challenged. Our market share is being threatened. Uh, we're going to compromise on earnings for a while. You're going to get hit. People don't get that. It's still, it's not their fault. That's the way the Indian market works. In the U.S. market, I think there's a lot of appetite. There's a lot of ability for people to uh, say, that's that's fine. We want to make sure that you're going to be the market leader. It's going to be a tough time for the next year or two. We've seen many turf wars like this, but we're willing to stay in. So I think your ability to retain your long onlys, as we call them, your long-term investors on your cap table, when you're going through a challenging time where your profitability gets challenged, is going to be actually much better in the U.S. compared to India. So if you're a growth company, I would still say the U.S. You have many comps out there. People have seen a lot, not just that they've probably seen now, I don't know, maybe even 500 internet companies of which maybe 150 are non-U.S., most of them Chinese. So there's plenty to comp with. And uh, people are quite comfortable taking that because let's not forget they have, many of them have actually uh, created of delivered most of their returns investing in tech. And, you know, Amazon till a few years ago, even worldwide, people used to say, when will this ever be profitable? And look how that changed. So things change and flip very fast. And everyone understands it's to do with scale and, and great execution. 
So I think if you're, you're a company that's very comfortable, firstly, with the way you run your company. I remember various people telling us that, listen, you've got to be super careful. You know, the compliance is very heavy and high, SOX compliance and everything else, and it'll take the mickey out of you. And the more they said that, I remember Rajesh, who was then CFO, and, and me, we would go back and say, hey, you know, we honestly, we have nothing to hide. We run a squeaky clean operation. We have one of the best auditors in the world, KPMG auditing it. Most of the time we get a clean report or we get something minor which we have to fix. What are we scared of? And, you know, I would look at him and I said, we should go for it. It got us even more excited when people said it's going to be tougher, honestly. And it, it became a challenge. And I remember another board member saying it, it, it'll take a long time. It could take, you know, close to two years from the process starting to listing because in India it took over a year for some other companies. And that became also the other challenge. And we had our kickoff meeting, I remember, in the Trident Obroys on the 6th of February. And on the 11th, uh, 12th of March, we listed, on the 12th of August, we listed. So six months, really, from start to end. And there, the credit really goes to the CFO. I think in our case, it was really Rajesh who was just driving that like a extra strain. And we had people sitting in office really, really late every night from our accountants. And we said, no, we're not going to accept that this trips over into the next month. The lawyers were always on call. Uh, the eye bankers were always there. So I think it was working like a well-oiled machine and we were super excited. So I think we caught that last week before the holidays and uh, it, it worked out very well. It was very good. So I would give the same advice, Ravi, to companies. Of course, it's case to case. You do lose out on the branding benefit. I think the branding benefit is the one which you lose out. And maybe at some point of time when it becomes easier to do a dual listing, maybe that's the answer. But right now, it's pretty cumbersome. One listing itself is, is pretty cumbersome. So I also tell founders, when you're planning to list, take a step back and think about this just alone or just the founders. Like, why do you really want to list? Because the reality is that for a founder, a listing is not a destination. It's not the end game at all. It's actually more of base camp and you're still, you've got a summit to climb. So it, the, the founder should be very clear that, listen, we want to do this. We want to create liquidity for our various stakeholders, take some off the table, but we are still going to be running this and taking it to the next level because fundamentally we are accessing public money today and we'll be able to access more of it. Our currency tomorrow, our stock tomorrow is currency. We can do a lot of stuff with that. So I think people should be very clear about why they're listing. And uh, there are many entrepreneurs who just want to do you know, more companies and they probably shouldn't be listing. They should probably be selling and then doing their next company. And I think that's a very personal question. But if you've made up your mind, you want to list, you are a consumer internet company, I would still say it's easier to go ahead in the US. I wish it was easier in India. Uh, it's not. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the post-listing advantages and disadvantages. So you mentioned that, you know, if you're a consumer brand, being public in India would be, you know, you know good for your brand, right? But it seems to me there, there's a lot of things that you know, Make My Trip did really well post-listing that perhaps would have been much more difficult in India in terms of, you know, you've done both secondaries, you've done convertibles, you've done share buybacks, you've done all these things that, that are very common in the U.S. market. But you know, having been the board of Just Dial Public in India, these things were not easy. Like it was not easy to buy back your stock. Adjust out. You have these art, you know, these net worth tests you have to do, despite having a lot of cash in the balance sheet. 
let's talk a little about these areas because my sense is you have, you'll have a lot of phone calls this year in terms of people asking for your advice. And I think that one of the big advantages of going public in the US is the fact that you can do some of these other instruments that are not as common in India. Is that a fair assumption or not? Yeah, that's, I think, one of the big pluses for sure. The markets are far more, uh, the listing is far more flexible. There's a lot of stuff you can do. Also, I think it's fairly uh, logical. I'll give you a great example. And this is, I think, an interesting anecdote, you know, which you are aware of, I think. I don't know if you remember it, but definitely I'll never forget it. So two days before listing, we, our lawyers got a call from SEC, which is for, every, for all the listeners, that's SEBI equivalent in, in the U.S., the Securities and Exchange Commission, and our lawyers got a call and they said there's been a complaint filed against this company. And it's been filed that you own or you uh, you took away someone's URL, uh, which was a competitor company in the offline space. I can name them now, which is I think they're getting their just rewards now. It was uh, Cox and Kings. And they tried to trip our IPO, which happens a lot, I believe, in India too. They tried to trip the IPO. So they, they approached, sorry, three days before and we got the call and then they again approached and our lawyers were keeping us and we were obviously very concerned. I remember we were in a meeting, we were pitching to investors and Rajesh suddenly said, listen, I've got to leave the room. His phone was running, uh, ringing and uh, I understood it was serious and he went out and he came back and he was looking pretty ashen and bothered and uh, when we discussed it between meetings, we were like in a scramble, like what are we going to do? So we split forces. I continued to do the marketing. He continued to kind of manage this and, and then our lawyers, I think they did a great job of handling this, but then I give a lot of credit to SEC because when they were again pinged by the same people, they almost saw desperation and they put two and two together that here's a company, there's no basis, they heard their complaint, they didn't even give it any heed. They just said, carry on, you guys are fine. Now that I believe in India would have caused the IPO uh, to have a hiccup something would have happened. So I think there's, there is definitely uh, more understanding and maybe, uh, you know, I, I haven't listed here. So my intention is definitely not to uh, run down the authorities out here and I haven't dealt with them firsthand, but all I can say in the US it was a pretty smooth process. And um, yes, there's a lot of flexibility. Uh, you can like, you know, I, I don't know what instruments, what are the comparable, but right now we thought it right to go ahead and do a raise on the basis of a convertible and uh, you know again the flexibility around that instrument was amazing so we'll talk, we talk, we'll talk a little bit about what a convertible is because yeah. the primary audience are basically founders mid early late stage in india yeah. and i don't think a lot of people know what a convertible is um, yeah, sure. so let's talk about no, really... why you would choose that instrument versus just you know simply choosing primary issuance yeah yeah so a convertible as the name suggests sort of convert is essentially a hybrid between a debt instrument and an and equity. So fundamentally, it converts into equity after the tenure. So in our case, we raise money on a seven-year convertible. There is a put option before that that the investors have. We have two put options at three and five years, which is pretty standard. And uh, of course, you can refinance it. Everyone wants their money back. You can hopefully refinance it. If the company is going well, no one will do that because here's the final terms that we got. So we went in saying, We'd like to get a range of 0% interest because right now interest rates are so low till 0.5% interest. And why a range? Because it depends on the demand that you get after your one or two days of marketing. In our case, it was one whole day, 16 hours of marketing. And uh, of course, all done today on video 
uh, conference, uh, which was the most amazing thing. So all of it done on the same platform like we're using right now on Zoom. And uh, we wanted to raise about 200 and there you can expand that with the green shoe option. So that could have gone by 15% more, just like an IPO, so 200 to go to 230 if there was demand. And, uh, and, and then there was obviously the tenure. And then the most important number beyond the uh, coupon rate is the premium that you will have to issue those shares eventually to the bondholders or to the convertible holders. And that premium, we went in hoping that we'll get 30 to 35% as it, uh, to our closing price, that end of day trading. Uh, there's always pressure on the price there for different reasons. And that's a little technical, but we can get into that if we have time. As it happened, uh, we managed to get really good demand because we were coming out of the crisis. The company was doing well. Like I said, we reported a profitable quarter. We got almost five to six X, 5.5 X demand. So we had more than uh, 1.1 billion in demand for a 200 uh, million that we want to raise, which gave us the ability to upprice. So we upriced. Uh, our premium went to 37.5%, which compensated for the last day dip in price of 10%, which was not fun. But more importantly, we could hold on to 0% coupons. So we have 0% money for seven years, which is great. Obviously, the people who hold that, what's in it for them? Well, if the company continues to do well, then they'll get very cheap stock after seven years. Uh, but we thought it was the best thing for the company rather than diluting at that point of time, uh, which was, let's say, a month ago at, at a price of about $30. That would have come under pressure. We might have ended up diluting directly at 28. We'll now go ahead and dilute at uh, almost $39. So it makes a big difference. Very flexible instrument. Uh, I'm not sure we could have done something similar out here and that quickly. I think the other point you made when you gave the Justile uh, example is just the speed. I think how quickly you can get these things done is is pretty commendable. I think the U.S. markets definitely uh, are pretty efficient. No, I agree. Yeah, I think I'm I'm clearly biased, and my my viewpoint hasn't changed in the last 12, 13 years. If, if the opportunity um, exists, I think I would still vote for U.S. listings for for our portfolio companies, but. Let me let's switch gears to something else where I think you also has a, you have a very unique advantage or viewpoint that we have I haven't heard much being covered in the media, and that's Go Ibepo because it's rare that a company in India has you know bought a company in India the same like a, a similar scale you know plus or minus here and there but similar scale you know you know love to hear your thought process and why that made sense or make my trip. Um, what went well, what didn't go well, what do you do again, um, what you do differently if, if a similar type of opportunity arrived again today. Um, just lessons learned on that because I think my sense is that you'll see more of that over the next 10 years um, as there is more consolidation across separate verticals. And you know, I think you're the first one to do it. So I'd love to hear your viewpoint on that. Absolutely, Ravi. So Ravi, I think this was now, it's been almost four years. Yeah, four years ago and therefore it was almost five years ago when we started, I think, taking GoIBO quite seriously. So the GoIBO became uh, a thorn in our side because they were all out. They were a privately held company. They were 100% owned by NASPERS, were very, very smart, savvy, and large investors. And they made it their mission in life to basically build a hotel business uh, at any cost, I'd like to say, and to you know move the numbers up of hotel room bookings because in our space, and you know this, but for the benefit of all listeners, the OTA space, the online travel agency space, uh, it is the hotel business, which is the holy grail. 
And the reason is pretty simple. It's a very fragmented market in India, even more so, more than the US. A lot of independents, very few chains, uh, which means that these small independent hotels in different parts of the country uh, cannot afford to buy keywords or to advertise uh, you know, in a large scale. And you de facto, as a leading OTA, become their uh, marketing vehicle to get them traffic or to get them a chance of selling a room when people are actually looking for something in that city or in that hyperlocation. So that's that's uh, the the you know I guess from some point of view it's it's some it's the place where we can add the maximum value versus the airline business where they're all large and they're all well known. In fact, the bus business I'll just give a little footnote has the best of both. The bus business is highly uh, fragmented. And we know that through Redbus, and it also has the liquidity of a ticketing business, so it moves very fast. So I think it's got the best of both. But the hotels have great economics, and Booking.com has shown the world. I mean, they've done such a great job, and they've shown the world. And now Airbnb is doing a great job, etc. So uh, we were very keen to build that, but we didn't ever want to, you know, burn a lot of money building that business. So we were always trying to do it uh, in the right kosher way, which is yes, we will never discount more than the margin that we can make. So if we can make 15 or 10% on a hotel, we're never going to spend more. But uh, Goa Vivo had a different playbook. They had a big uh, checkbook saying, listen, let's just go up and catch up in volumes to uh, make my trip on you know, whether it's budget hotels or not. So in reality, it was largely budget hotels where they built a very large business, so much so that not only did we take them seriously, it became pretty clear to us that we're getting a lot of pressure from them. We were a listed company, they were private. That's the advantages of staying private and they could keep on burning money and making us not look pretty at all when it came to market share or when it came to pricing because of the response to that, even we had to give discounts, et cetera. And um, you know, finally, uh, I, I did think it would make a lot of sense to, to see if we could actually you know, do an M&A, acquire this brand and see how it goes. And I started that conversation with, with the company. And I'm glad that it worked out. It wasn't cheap. Uh, you know, Nasper's in turn got a big, big chunk of the company. They did put in more cash. It was, but in hindsight, I think it was the right thing to do because we did get some sanity back in the market for a while till someone else came along and put pressure. But, but I think, and the reality is even today, we run that brand and we're very happy to keep investing in that brand because in the budget space and particularly when it comes to the young customer the youth and the customer who's looking for deals uh they've got a pretty loyal base so for us our estimate was when we were you know kind of playing out the merger in our own mind and we were actually uh simulating the merger and we we're saying how will this work out we, we assume there'll be an overlap about 25 to 30 percent of customers between the two brands we were pleasantly surprised to see that it was low it was in the low 20s and over time we've cleaved the brands even further where now the overlap between them is in the low teens so that's really good for us because then it's very distinct spaces on the spectrum make my trip is clearly more aspirational more premium brands uh, budget is uh, Goa Vivo is more budget, more youth oriented, and we also have an added in customers as they move between the two brands. That's very interesting to see cohorts of customers. Why do they leave? At what point do they leave? Do they go check and do they come back? So you can do pretty fascinating data science experiments between when you have two brands, and it's not uncommon because if you look at the OTA space worldwide, uh, whether it's the Booking family or it's the Expedia family. There's a whole host of brands and, you know, most of the time customers actually don't know 
and uh, it's how you run them at the back and how much you can synergize on systems, et cetera. So I think it's worked out well, uh, but, but you know, there are times you go for this and there are times you go for the kill. So I also did study in detail what happened in China uh, with C-Trip and Elong and then C-Trip and Chinar, and maybe that also helped. So I think today I can say it was the right thing to do, but could we have done certain things better? Uh, absolutely. I mean, there's, we probably could have moved earlier and bought it cheaper. Um, besides that, I think the biggest lesson I would give other folks who are looking for a large scale M&A, like you said, is that it's the most important and the toughest thing you'll do is the integration, not the deal. The deal is easy, the integration is really hard. The people integration, the systems integration, the brand. And one of the founders has got to make it their KRA to get that done. Uh, otherwise, it won't happen. If you are gonna, if you're gonna give this off to someone else, you're not gonna get the best of what you bought, and then it would be a wasted thing. So I think in this case, we were actually all hands on the deck. I think it was something that Rajesh and I was spending disproportionate time on, and I think that's the reason it happened because otherwise, uh, you'd never get the best out of uh, the deal that you've done. So that would be my biggest advice: take this very seriously. It's a known stat and a known fact that. 75 to 80% of MA fail. And they fail simply because on, on, the, on the spreadsheets and on the PowerPoints, it looks great. The stakeholders feel very happy. You know, everyone thinks this is gonna be great. And then it's just left to work itself out with some senior management wanting to make it work out. But that's typically where they start failing. How, how did you know, retention work? Um, it's been, I think, five, six years now. Is that roughly? Is Four years since the deal is done. Yeah, four years plus. How's retention worked across the GoIB boat and Red Bus teams? Yeah, it's a great point. I think upfront we knew not everyone would stay. So you start top down always, and we knew some folks are going to leave. So in some cases, like it was really hard to have two CFOs. So we had a very frank conversation, and uh, clearly, uh, you know, it didn't make sense to have another CFO there. So that was a known kind of upfront casualty. We did try to make it happen, do something else, but it didn't work out. But uh, with with the CEO, uh, I think again we did try pretty hard to make that work. Uh, it's not I was very honest in making it work. So was Rajesh. Uh, but I think after a while, a good while actually, after maybe a year and a half or so, a year at least, it became pretty clear that the fundamental DNA is different. And I think that's a big learning for me. I think when people have led a company like founder CEO. And that's what, you know, Ashish in this case was. He was the founder CEO. He led this company like his own baby. I think he had his own ways of functioning. And it's pretty hard to start reporting into someone. And, uh, you know, I can fully understand that. So, you know, we had a couple of mature conversations around that saying, listen, if it's not working, then let's, let's you know, just call that out rather than having the friction and, but, you know, uh, to his credit, I think he really helped us integrate the team. A lot of the other folks stayed on. Some of them are still very much there and occupying leadership position in the, in the leadership team. Redbus, which was part of the deal, uh, was run as an independent company. And, uh, you know, the entire team is still there and very key members of the leadership team, whether it's Prakash or it's a new CEO and the CTO. Uh, the gentleman who came to us from the hotel supply side of Goa Vivo is now one of our CXOs. So I think it comes down also to the individual. Uh, you know, what kind of allegiances did you have? Was it only to a brand or was it to a team? Or did you give enough time 
for the new management to even build that rapport and trust with you. So I think some people responded to that. Uh, I can say uh, with you know complete candor that we really wanted to retain all the folks we set up front. And yeah. some of them are just phenomenal folks like uh, the CTO from GoIBO, um, you know, I think just a solid, awesome guy, because he's still a friend, he stayed with us for several years and he's quick to do his own thing. And, you know, I will be the first one to invest behind him uh, as you may he gives me that opportunity because I think he's just such an awesome guy. And we work very closely, even post, uh, even beyond Make My Trip and Goibibo, we worked on the contact tracing app uh, for India, Arogya Setu, and, you know, he was one of the key builders of that. And, you know, I was pretty much program, de facto program and project manager for that. So, uh, you know, high quality people, many of the guys on the tech and product space are still with us, really awesome guys. Uh, and uh, we're hoping that, uh, you know, they'll all stay on. I think by now people have made up their mind. I think they've seen this a good place to be, but it's a very individual thing. Some people over time did leave and maybe that's, that's okay too. Makes sense. So let's switch gears a little bit. Um, one thing I've always had a tremendous amount of respect for is what you've done on the philanthropic side, whether it's Ashoka University, I think it's Am Gurgaon, if I remember correctly. Um, let's walk through some of the initiatives you're doing on the personal side, because um, I think that's also hopefully a trend that we see increasing in the overall as more founders you know, get their companies public and have some liquidity and start looking about giving back. Um, we'd love to understand like what you're most passionate about today. Yeah, thank you for that. And I, I hope so. I hope it becomes a trend among the new age sector. Something tells me it will, because I think people are definitely thinking a lot more about um, the environment and other other players, other constituents in the ecosystem, just beyond uh, you know the obvious. So I guess it started off as a personal passion. And there were quite a few people in Make My Trip who were pretty keen to give back in different ways. So I remember in the early days, uh, we would go and teach in a school, uh, in an in a orphanage home pretty close to office because we had no money, but we could give them. So every Saturday, we would go and spend a couple of hours teaching these young girls, um, you know, math or English or whatever else we knew. And it was fun. Then we would call them into office and do all kinds of stuff for them. And we saw that NGO, Udayan Ke, grow incredibly. And we so much so we've actually hired people from there on Merit. And it's, it's, I've seen them grow 21 years because we started with them early. But I think it evolved over time, Ravi. So I think our turning point was about a decade ago, not just personally, I think also as a company where we said, we've got a responsibility to, you know, I think, well, not, not, to, not to use an off-use phrase, but to the planet. And because we're making so many people travel, we can't turn a blind eye to the negative impact of travel. Everything's positive about travel, right? You become better human beings, you understand different cultures, you connect better. In fact, that term called well-traveled is, you know, obviously it comes from somewhere. It means you're basically a man or woman of the world and you understand a lot more things. So I think that's all great, but the biggest negative is obviously the carbon footprint. And we understood that we're causing a lot of carbon footprint by doing this. So we started offering our customers the ability, this was almost 11 years ago, of donating a little bit of money above the price of the ticket, which went towards an NGO which planted trees out in Rajasthan uh, near, near Odaipur. And they did it very cheap because they actually got the villagers involved and they did it. It's called Seva Mandir. It's a great NGO. And it became pretty fashionable and it grew and people were quite happy to do that. And we would get almost 20%, 17 to 20% people happy to contribute uh, quite a bit. 
And then we institutionalized that further and we said, hey, maybe, or rather we thought about that even further, maybe we take micro payments, don't offset everything, but just 10 rupees on a ticket. And that attached number grew further. And we realized that a lot of people who are booking tickets online were very happy to make these kind of um, these kind of purchases and uh, and or rather these kind of donations, and that was pretty exciting because uh, you know we we suddenly realized that uh, you know we can match that up with company money. Individuals in the company were very keen. We can go out twice a year or four times a year and actually do some volunteering out there and plant those trees. And believe it or not, in ten years' time, we had already helped plant a million trees. Uh, through, through these donations, micropayments, which were coming in, uh, and it was very fulfilling. And then we made it, we thought about the Make My Trip Foundation and how we can impact in different ways. And our charter is really around sustainable tourism and really to uh, help parts of India which have a very high tourism potential, but otherwise are very poor on dwelling. So the cross-section of that is Ladakh, and we were sending a lot of people to Ladakh, the Andamans, Kashmir Valley, the Northeast. They're just phenomenal parts of India, but they need infrastructure. But we don't want it to become the same story as we've done to many other parts of the country. So the Andamans, just before lockdown, it was my last trip before lockdown. And a bunch of us were on a beautiful island there called Neil Island near Havelock. And we did our flogging bit. But more importantly, we had built three water ATMs which can help eliminate the need for uh, single-use plastic bottles on that entire island. So we're working very closely with the administration. If that works, we can take it to uh, the main Havelock Island, finally to Port Blair, and we can actually keep those seas clean of single-use plastic. For me, that's the most exciting project we're working on because you can see immediate benefit. And then we're doing a bunch of other stuff in Ladakh. We're tied up with Sonam Manchuk Foundation where we're trying to, he's found a new way of planting in a cold, arid desert like Ladakh which is a Japanese method called Miyawaki Foundation, uh, uh, Miyawaki Plantation. And we're doing a, uh, uh, a pilot with him where we gave 10 lakhs. If that works, then we'll give a crore, which is, I think, already got sanctioned. And fundamentally, it can change the landscape of the place and actually keep it green even through winter. And that normally they are flash floods because they have no uh, green cover. And the flash floods cause all of the, uh, you know, kind of soil to get washed away into the water every, every, uh, time there's a there's the rivers in spate or there's a lot of rainfall so i think there's a lot to be done and we want to play our part doing that so i'm very excited about where our foundation is we have a bunch of things anyone who's interested should check out make my Trip foundation on on the site and and give us your ideas and views so very open to that and that ties in very well with the personal passion so i'm a founding member of i am Gurdown, which is an ngo and Gurdown, which safe partners now elevation uh, capital has has supported the planting of trees. And that also started with actually a vision to plant a million trees in Gurgaon. And we ended up setting up a biodiversity park in Gurgaon and saving a lot of flora, fauna, and a large tract of land from being, you know, coming under the builder's kind of uh, thumb and becoming yet another kind of condominium or whatever. So I think we managed to do quite a few interesting projects in Gurgaon with that. And we, we, we hope that we can keep doing more stuff. So yeah, I think it's personal passion. Ashoka, what you mentioned is a very unique, uh, uh, you know, I think endeavor. Uh, credit goes to Ashish Thavan and Sanjeev Dikchandani and Pramat Sinha and a bunch of other guys. I came in early stage, but not as early as these guys. And the premise, the premise was very simple that listen, liberal arts education in India has not evolved over time. 
Uh, I'm a product of liberal arts. I did economics and uh, in, in Delhi University, I studied that. And the curriculum hasn't changed much. The pedagogy hasn't changed much. And whereas it's just so exciting how you can study liberal arts overseas today, particularly in the US. So it's modeled on, on the US colleges. It's done exceedingly well, uh, knock on wood, and keeps going from strength to strength. I'm very passionate, very proud to be part of the Shoka. I'm on their board and governing body. And yeah, I'm very happy to see. And, you know, honestly, at almost every second Ashoka meeting, when we talk about other colleges coming up, we actually remind ourselves that we're quite happy if one Ashoka can give rise to a hundred similar colleges or similar like Ashoka. That's what India needs. So it's not a competitive game. The idea is just to set the bar very high for the quality of education. Every single student I speak to from Ashoka says only one thing that I'm so happy I'm studying here. Um, you know, it's a lot of hard work, but boy, I'm loving it. So I think there's something really special going on with Ashoka and it's really setting the bar. So I hope there'll be many more like that. Yeah. Awesome. That's fantastic. So I, I'm going to move to the next section now, which is basically we kind of crowd surfed. We asked a bunch of early stage founders, what would they ask you if they had, um, you know, time 15, 20 minutes on a Zoom call with you? So, um, you know, one of the questions that came up was that, you know, you've obviously you know, started and I've run Make My Trip for 20 years now. How have you been able to, or what has changed over the last 20 years and your ability to kind of retain your best talent in what is, you know, a very competitive market? Um, it's, you know, there's just there's so many more companies today than there were five, 10, 15 years ago. What are the, I mean, it's not just always money. It's not always just like, you know, stock grants. I think too often younger founders will just say, look, I'm going to give them more stock or something along those lines. So what have you learned over the last 10, 50 years in terms of, having to really retain and motivate your, 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 your best employees? Yeah, lots of learning, firstly. Uh, and it's a great question, whoever's asked that. I think it is one of the biggest uh, jobs, uh, tasks, KRAs, and challenges of a founder CEO. Uh, there is no company without a team. I'm very clear on that. Some people believe they can do it alone, which is power to them. But I think if you want to build a really robust company, you need a team. Uh, we have lost quite a few, and I'm always sad when someone good leaves. But how we've managed to retain a large number is, um, I think, fundamentally understanding the, the hot buttons of people. I think fundamentally understanding their aspirations, their goals, their strengths, their weaknesses, and actually playing to the strengths. And I learned that a little later. I didn't know that all at once. For the longest time, I was trying always to kind of change uh, certain things about people and try to make them better in all aspects and well-rounded, blah, blah, blah. And I realized only after some time that people don't change fundamentally, especially beyond a certain age and stage. So beyond a certain age, maybe it's 30, maybe it's 35, and definitely beyond a certain stage, which means they've achieved some degree of success, they're not going to change. So forget about their so-called you know, rough spots or rough edges. Forget about their uh, you know, weaknesses play to their strengths, give them stuff that they're really good at. Hold on to those entrepreneurial people who might make you uncomfortable because they're always thinking about new stuff, but they are really your best friends. And I think if you can do that, that's interesting. So give people the latitude. Also, if you get someone good, never ever look over their shoulder. I think you have to give them the latitude to run. Give them the ball, tell them what they have to do, but don't tell them how. Just tell them this is what is expected of you, but you can chart charter your own course. I think that's really exciting for many entrepreneurs, which is why a lot of people have joined you. 
which is why high quality people leave large companies because they're tired of the of the set regimen they're tired of the bureaucracy if there is i mean i'm not saying all large companies are bad but the people who leave are actually seeking a different level of excitement and if they came in for that and you promised them that then please live up to your promise right away so i i, I think it's about that i was doing a session this morning with a, a, you know a, a, with with a large almost 200 300 uh, people in the company and it was about empowerment um and i was actually trying to tell people the most important thing really is that people are given the latitude if you've got a rock star you've managed to hire someone who's really good and then you try to look over your shoulder you try to clip their wings you're going to kill the very reason they came to you for so please ensure that you keep giving them that that level of latitude that level of freedom uh to fail that level of freedom to experiment and you know uh, because if they stop doing that then what's the point anyway companies like ours definitely don't need conformists companies like ours need people who feel for the company feel the passion and are willing to take risks and are always thinking about something new and how to do it better so i think if you get those kind of gems you see that kind of spark it's your job never to let them go whatever it takes so yeah i i do try and i i think uh, rajesh definitely does uh, this as well and i think both of us uh, spend a lot of time on it um next question i have is this is this is kind of an interesting question because um this, there's a founder who's starting a company now that is it's form of, form of e-commerce but it's a new form of e-commerce that hasn't been you know tried in india so far it's been tried in other markets and it's done well and so his question was you know how do you go about building a new category which obviously you did, you know, 20 years ago. People say, yeah, online travel, I get it, OTA. But the reality is there's a new, there's a new category. It was not intuitive uh, for people to book online, as you put it multiple times. I think, and, you know, I've heard you saying there are a lot of lookers, not bookers, right? And, um, you know, how did you, so, you know, what, you know, what are the th things you saw work for you in terms of defining a new category in India? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think firstly, um, I don't think I looked at it like that. I looked at it as, is this a easier and a better and a more efficient way to book travel for the customer, eventual customer, and to sell travel for the stakeholder? So that's what I was really looking at. So I think, you know, I was comparing to a period where people were either walking into travel agents or largely calling up. And this was definitely going to be more powerful and more empowering because this was going to be able to give customers all the choices. You're in control. So fundamentally, we put the customer in control away from the travel agent who was always in control and very often sold you what they wanted to sell you because you had no way of knowing what's going on on that cryptic screen. So you bought what they said is available, but now we transferred that power to you. That met with in, uh, initial instant success. Obviously, that had happened in different markets. It had happened in the West. It happened in China. It had not happened in India. So yes, we were pioneers there. But the reason it succeeded was it was easier for customer. It was beneficial for customer. It was empowering for customer. And it was more efficient for supplier. So I would probably like to apply the same criteria to this new way of doing e-commerce, which I'm you know, very intrigued to know what it is. And if you satisfy these three or four things, I think it's quite likely that you'll meet success as well, but it can't just be a cooler way. It's got to, at the end of the day, it's got to work with economics. First principles, always first, first principle. Always. 
Um, I have one last question for you. This is my question for you. Where are you dying to go to once COVID opens up, once the, once the country opens up or the, the world opens up? What's the first trip that you just want, you've already booked in your head? Yeah, it may not be the first. So uh, I think I've said it many times. My favorite place on the planet is probably the Maldives, which is so easy to get to. I went through COVID. So we were brave enough to go uh, last November. Uh, yeah. You know, Maldives was one of the few places open for Indians and um, it was it was our 25th anniversary. So we, we, we said, what the hell, let's just go. And thankfully it worked out uneventfully. <laughs> so that was all that was all good. But no, I the, the trip that got shelved was a trip to see the Northern Lights. It was to Iceland to see the Northern Lights last March. So it got shelved. It was with a bunch of friends. And so probably that's the one we definitely have to make good on. Mari and I and the kids will join you as well. That's that would be so cool. That would be so cool. Yeah, list. that's on the bucket list. So, but yeah, I think we're going to all appreciate every trip that we make much more now, uh, very soon. Yes, we still have to do it carefully, but I, I don't think anyone's going to forget this one. So, yeah, and I, I think there's some good, good lessons learned. It's been a very hard way to teach them, uh, brutal way to teach these lessons. But I think there are lessons learned around, you know, just maybe sanitation and hygiene and just being more careful. And of course, uh, you know, not getting ahead of ourselves in many things. And in some sort of ways, I think for the world of science as well, I think the ability now to react faster if you can't be proactive. I mean, everyone assumed it'll always take five to 10 years to, to develop a vaccine. Well, guess right. what? You know, they did manage to crash that timeline. So I think that's, if you can't stay one step ahead, then you just have to be very quick at catching up. So I think people need to be experimenting with a lot of vaccines. Who knows what we'll need next, right? So, but yeah, it's been quite a time. And, you know, I'm looking forward to having a drink with you. It's been a really long time, Ravi. So hopefully we'll get that out. No, I, I was I was joking. I'm, I'm looking forward to our quarterly dinners in Delhi. So I think by I'm thinking October, somewhere in that timeline. I'm looking forward to this. Has been great, but nothing beats nothing beats a face to face interaction. Um, totally. I can't wait to come back to India for that. So thank you again for taking the time. Um, really enjoyed this conversation, and I can't wait to have dinner with you in Delhi soon. Yeah, it's been my pleasure, Ravi. It's been great. Thank you for having me once again. Talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks again. Mm -hmm.